Welcome to NASA in Silicon Valley, episode 48. This week we're talking to Bill Thigpen, chief of the advanced supercomputing branch here at Ames. Bill manages high-end computing activities for NASA's key system development efforts like the Columbia and Pleiades supercomputers, some of the world's fastest and most capable systems. We also talk about his day-to-day -day role to make sure that these systems are up and running and being used effectively by the scientists and engineers here at NASA. So here is Bill Thigpen. Welcome, Bill. And tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you end up at NASA? What brought you to Silicon Valley? Oh, wow. <laughs> I've been playing with computers since the 70s. Okay. So This is a good place to be for that. Yeah, but I was in North Dakota. Okay, not so, so good of a place for that. <laughs> well, you have time on your hands, though. <laughs> yeah, there was a lot of time on my hands, but I, I really fell in love with them. And at that time, there really wasn't a way to get a degree in computer science. Mm -hmm. it didn't really exist. Yeah. And I, I left North, this was in high school, and I left North Dakota, and I went to the Air Force Academy for a while. And then I went to the University of Nebraska. Okay. And there I got into computer science. Okay. And I was actually in the first graduating class with a computer science degree. There were six of us. Really? And at the time, it was kind of buried underneath the math department. Mm -hmm. But the next semester, there were 100. And the semester after that, there were 200. Mm -hmm. So it was a real early time to become involved in it. And I got really, really lucky because right out of college, I was hired by a company in Nebraska. Okay. And I started writing parallel operating systems. Really? Yeah, so that's not a normal thing you get to do out of, high, out of college. Out of college. I was going to say, you're in demand. There yeah. probably wasn't a lot of you to <laughs> pick from. There, there weren't many parallel computers around. Wow. And so I lucked out and, and got that. But when I was going to college, I got married, and my wife made me promise <laughs> to get a job outside of Omaha. <laughs> okay. And so the job I got was in Bellevue, which is like saying I'm going to get a job outside of San Jose, and you get a job in Santa Clara. It's like, ooh. Uh, they touch. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, and so – a couple years went by, and mm -hmm. um, I got an offer to come out to California with the company that I was with. And I okay. came out here and was working in really a lot of military stuff. So mm -hmm. doing things, um, building communication systems, working on mm -hmm. secure communication systems. Okay. Even got to do some stuff where I wrote programs that ran motors and radars and figured out where to put terminal Doppler weather radars. Okay. And I actually got a license to drive a semi-truck oh, while I was see, doing yeah. that. <laughs> and so eventually I ended up uh, doing some work out at NASA. And um, while I was here, I moved into supercomputing. Oh, and wow. so I started in these parallel computers, and I ended up in parallel computers. And I, You've always been on the cutting edge. <laughs> well, yeah, I have. You know, it was, it's been real exciting. And so my first job at NASA was in 1999, and I got a job as a branch chief in the NASA Advanced Supercomputing Division, and I've been there ever since. And it's been amazing. You know, it, when I first got there, teraflop computing wasn't around. You know, you didn't yeah. do a trillion floating point operations yeah. on a single system. 
And during that time, I've been fortunate enough to be involved in the deployment of the Columbia supercomputer, which Mm -hmm. at the time, for a very small period of time, it was the fastest computer in the U.S. About a week later, Blue Jean came out, and it was the fastest, but it was the fastest production computer for about a year. And in 2004, it got an award as the most significant thing that happened in supercomputing. Oh, wow. And I got to lead the effort building that. And then in 2008, I got to build Pleiades, which sort of dwarfed the Columbia system. And Pleiades has gone from 500 teraflops to seven and a half petaflops is where it's sitting today. So thinking of like the supercomputing, especially as, you know, when you started at NASA yeah. in 99, um, I'm thinking back, it's like the Apple II was already a thing. People had Windows 95, yeah. like the home computer was becoming a thing. And then you're working on the supercomputer. Right. What makes the computer super? What's the main difference? So if you think of your home computer, it's got a processor. Yeah, you know, ideally, I mean, yes. a chip. You know, sometimes it'll have a couple of chips. Uh huh. But when you build a supercomputer, you take that model, and in, at least in the case of parallel computers, you take that model and you just duplicate it over and over and over and over okay. again. If you look at the Pleiades computer, each rack has seventy-two nodes in it, and a node you could think of as a home computer on steroids. So so if your home computer has one processor, which probably has multiple cores, one of our nodes has two processors with all of those cores. And then we take those and we link them together with a very high-speed network. Mm -hmm. And it allows each of those nodes to communicate with each other. And then we take those nodes within the rack and we hook them up with other racks and we keep doing that over over and and over and over. And so when you think of like the Pleiades supercomputer, it's an 11 dimension dual plane hypercube, which means that the connections that come out, if you look at a single rack, you have cables running within that rack to connect yeah. the, the, the systems. And within that one rack, you have three dimensions. Then when you add the rack next to it, you have the fourth dimension. When you have, add the two racks to next to that, you have your fifth dimension. Then you add okay. your four racks next to that, you have your sixth dimension. You add eight racks next to that, you have your seventh. And then you start duplicating rows. Further and, further. and so what that means is that when you're dealing with these really complex problems and you've sort of divided the problem among a bunch of these processors, yeah. to communicate, they never have to go more than 11 hops to talk from anywhere in the machine to anywhere else in the machine. And by having that, the very high-speed networks, it doesn't really slow them down, and so they're able to, to communicate well. So if you want to know what a supercomputer yeah. The difference, it really is the speed in which they can communicate with each other. And then there's some other kind of difficult problems that get stacked on top of that. Yeah. Things like the file system. Okay. If you think about your disk in your home computer, your disk in your home computer, yeah. you have you using it. Nobody else is using it at the same time. But if you look at our computer, we have hundreds of users all accessing the same file system or all accessing the same disk all over that network that we were talking about. Mm -hmm. 
And so the ability of the software to deal with all those requests coming in and out okay. becomes very complex. It's not like one person is using the like Pallades supercomputer at one time. You've got mm-hmm. multiple people trying to get something out of it. Right. So you can go online. Point. You know, anyone who's listening to this could go yeah. online right now and look at what our computer is doing. So that website is public. Okay. It shows how many jobs are running. It shows how busy the system is. Okay. It shows how much of it's available to use. And, you know, so people can see it. And generally what we have is we'll have hundreds of jobs running at any given time. Mm-hmm. The, the majority of our time is spent with jobs running about the 8,000 core, uh, 8, core level. And, and so that's multiple nodes. That's hundreds of nodes. I was going to say, yeah, there's like hundreds of personal right. i7, right. Right. like beefed up computers. Yeah, that's exactly it. And, and we're using Intel processors. So yeah. it's Intel inside type thing. Yeah. So they're, they're sort of commodity, mm-hmm. but it's, it's a very different environment. Is there a limit to how many dimensions and racks you can add to it? Or is this like an... Or is there a certain point of like maybe diminishing returns where you can keep adding more, but you're not getting quite enough out of it? Or is this just like exponential? You just can get bigger and bigger and bigger. So your limiting factor is money. <laughs> As always. I, I mean, on a number of levels. Yeah. One of the levels is the power that you draw. Okay. Get really hot. <laughs> well, it's not just that it gets really hot. It gets really expensive. So Pleiades draws four megawatts of power. Oh, wow. And compare, compare that. Your house draws one kilowatt. <laughs> okay. Okay. So, I, all right. I, I, you got a, you got a, a neighborhood. Yeah, <laughs> a small you, town. you have a town. Okay. Yeah. And, and that costs money. Mm-hmm. We have users today that in order for them to, to really solve the problem that they're trying to solve, they would need a Yotta Flop computer. Yada flop. A yada flop. And no one knows what a yada flop yeah, is, right? No, I mean, no one has an idea. You could be making it up. I wouldn't right. know. <laughs> it, it, it's hard enough thinking about the, the scales that we talk about. You know, a mm-hmm. petaflop. Yeah. Years ago, people didn't know what a peta was. They didn't know what a tera was. Most people know what a giga is, yes, right? So a giga is a billion. That. And when you have a thousand of those, you have a tera. And when you have a thousand of those, you have a peta. Okay, I feel like this gets bigger. Right, and then when you have a thousand of those, you have an exa, and you have a thousand of those, you have a zeta, (laughs) and when you have a thousand of those, you have a yada. Alrighty. Okay, and so that's the scale. (laughs) Already like gone way past my conceptual mind. Right, and so that's the scale that that we have users who need today, and and you go, well, why would anyone need something that big? And it's really simple. They're trying to model very complex things. In this case. In this one case, the user is trying to model the magnetosphere. Okay. So that's the sort of protective shell that surrounds the Earth. And that, that falls into like the obvious follow-up question of when you think of NASA, rocket launches, training astronauts, exploring the solar system and beyond, it kind of comes into NASA has a supercomputer. Like, so how does NASA use this supercomputer? Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it permeates everything. It's like every section, whether it's aeronautics, it's exploration, it always seemed to have the supercomputer involved. So one of my titles is the deputy project <laughs> manager for the high-end computing capability project. Okay. Okay. And its role is to provide this tool to NASA. NASA in 2004 
realized that high-end computing was an essential tool for it to do its job. Yeah. And it wasn't just an essential tool for aeronautics yeah. or, or for designing spacecraft. It was needed across the board. So we support scientists doing astrophysics. Mm-hmm. So they're looking at the origins of the universe. They're looking at what happened when universes collide. They look at what happened when black holes collide. They, there are scientists that are looking from the Big Bang all the way to the present. They're trying to understand the fundamental workings of, of everything. Of, of everything. Of, 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 of literally everything. <laughs> and then we have planetary scientists. You've heard about the Kepler mission and, and so. discovering new planets. They're heavy users of our computer. They're sitting there looking at these results coming from, from space, and they're running through thousands of, of, of different results, looking to see this tiny blip that is this planet moving in front of the star. They have the science and, and theory to be able to tell you what that planet looks like and whether or not what temperature that planet is and whether mm-hmm. or not man could live on that planet. We have heliophysics. It turns out that we have a star that's pretty close to us. It's really important to look at. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because yes. we depend on that thing, right? Yes. And so we have scientists that look at that. They run simulations trying to understand better what's happening in our star. And then we have Earth science, which is a very important part of mm-hmm. what NASA does. I always used to explain it that we had satellites that point out and we have satellites that point down. The satellites that point down are gathering data that are, are helping us understand better Mm-hmm. what's happening on this planet. Yeah. And with that data, policymakers can make decisions mm-hmm. to change uh, laws on how you deal with fuel consumption. They can look at what's happening to uh, the forest, etc. But also scientists are looking at things like earthquakes. Yeah. Modeling hurricanes. The erosion. Uh, you know, all, all of, just even we have scientists that are working on things like helping farmers better utilize their land and all of that is done on these systems and then so that's that's sort of the science mission side the human explorations and operations in that area we're looking at designing capsules designing rockets it it used to be that you'd have to build models Mm -hmm. and take those models into wind tunnels and do tests yeah well, with a computer, you can run through thousands of changes in a very rapid manner. You can really save money mm-hmm. in it, the cost to get from idea to, to when you bend metal, when you actually build the rocket. But there are also things that you can test in a computer that you can't test anywhere. Even perfect it in the computer, get it refined, and then eventually towards the end, when you think you really got it straight, then go to a wind tunnel and see if it's the same. But it turns out now there are planes that are being built that never go to the wind tunnel. Oh, wow. The accuracy of the models has improved so much by these advances in supercomputing that it's no longer required on some designs to even go to a wind tunnel. But it is a design, it is a requirement to have a supercomputer to build an airplane. Uh, You look at at the work on, on rockets, when mm-hmm. when you think about as the rocket stages are coming off, yeah. Well, what happens to the rocket if they reconnect? You know, how do you test that? Yeah. In a computer, you can test it. Yeah, like like even the, the temperature. I'm guessing right. the humidity, minor tweaks in this. 
paint out all your scenarios. Some of the things that, that people don't really think about sometimes mm-hmm. is we even use supercomputers to model the launch environment. I remember seeing a simulation on one of the hyper walls, yep. and it was this like sketch of the SLS, you know, rocket that NASA is building now, and it was showing like the plumes and the rocket fuel, the liquid, and right. like all of the stuff taking off, and like all those little bits of swirling around have a purpose. It's not like an artistic rendering of it. Right. It's the supercomputer. And what that supercomputer allowed us to do was to decide whether or not we needed a new mobile launch platform. Oh, wow. Whether they need to rebuild the stuff at Kennedy or... Right. Yeah. A $2 billion cost. (sighs) Yes. And and, and so you ask why we have supercomputers. We have supercomputers to save the taxpayer money. So the next thing that we're really looking at is in aeronautics. Mm -hmm. And it's real funny. You know, a lot of people don't realize NASA does aeronautics. Yeah, I mean, it's literally in the name. Right. It's (laughs) part of the name. (laughs) Yes. And... This center has done aeronautics for a long time. Since before NASA. Right, you know. when, when it was NACA. Yeah. But supercomputing, its really first responsibility mm-hmm. was for aeronautics. Oh, wow. It was for designing airplanes. It was for making improvements on aircraft. And at NASA, what we're doing is we're really looking at ways of making aircraft more efficient. Mm-hmm. We're trying to make them quieter. We're trying to make them get to cruise altitude faster, which mm-hmm. saves the taxpayer or the, the people who are using airplanes a lot yeah. of money. And we look at really complex problems. So we look at things like rotorcraft. Yeah. And if you think about how that model looks, it's a very complex model. Mm-hmm. And so what do we do with supercomputing? Pretty much everything across the board. <laughs> well, and it's funny because like, if you think of NASA, whether it's telescopes or even the wind tunnels or, or all the instrumentation that NASA does, it's all about like data collection, data collection. You have like, like I'm sorry, Excel sheets full and full of data, like, like full of all the data you could think of. But at the end of the day, like the magic happens or well, the science happens of when you take that data and turn it into knowledge. Right. And a big part about processing all of that data, it's like you have a supercomputer on your side that can help you help make those connections, I guess. Yeah, it's very interesting because a lot of times when you're in supercomputers, what you Mm -hmm. really talk about is how many flops you have or how big a computer you have or how fast you have uh, a computer you have. Our goal is not to have a fast computer. Our goal is to really enhance science and engineering. Yeah. So it's a tool. And it's a tool to make the the really cool things that NASA's chartered to do possible. Starting back in 1999 and seeing where we are now, but then looking to the future, five, ten years, what is the future for supercomputing? I know we've, we've talked about like quantum computing and that kind of that leap. What's your job going to look like coming up? So I'm thrilled with what we're doing right now. Yeah. So for probably the last ten years, mm-hmm. I've really struggled with how to provide NASA with more computing given the constraints that we have. Yes. And one of the constraints that we have is the building that we're in. Yeah. And so we're moving from traditional computing within a building to a new concept of doing supercomputing in modules. Okay. And a lot of people said, well, you know, why, why would you do that? Well, earlier I said that supercomputers use a lot of power. Mm-hmm. Well, that power sort of equates to heat. <laughs> and, and so we have to get that heat out of the 
out of the facility. Of, yeah. And so four megawatts for the computer, about one and a half megawatts to cool the computer. Wow. Okay. It's so lot, and it's very expensive to do right, all this right. and heating so, and cooling. It's probably closer to one megawatt. Yeah. But it's expensive. So so basically, for every dollar we spend on computing, we're spending twenty six cents to cool that computer. Oh wow. Okay. Yeah. That, that's sort of where where we are in in our facility in our supercomputing facility. So I looked at this new way of deploying computers. Mm-hmm. And by using this module, instead of going through the very complex set of systems that we have to go through to cool the computer inside, which means we have to go through a cooling tower, we have to pump the water from the cooling tower to chillers, we have to pump a a different set of water from the chillers up to the computers, we have to get it back down. All of that activity is where you get that 26 cents. Okay. So I've changed that to putting these computers and modules outside and using the air that's free. And so now instead of spending 26 cents, I'm spending less than three. Awesome. And the other side of that is instead of evaporating a lot of water, I'm barely using any water at all. And so we're able to provide the computing for less energy, Mm -hmm. using less water, and so we deployed a prototype that's really went operational at the end of last year. Mm-hmm. And because of the success of that system, we're looking at deploying a much larger system that will allow us to meet a lot of those needs yeah. that are needed. So on one hand, I kind of see this growth of capability based on technology that we have today and the growth that we ha- we see there. But I see other types of advanced computing coming in. You mentioned quantum computing. Yeah. So we have a quantum computer at the NAS. It's a very experimental machine. It's yeah. looking at a different type of computing. Yeah. It's better at modeling things that are uncertain. As a digital person, I kind of think of everything as ones and zeros. Yes, it's either it's on, on or, or off. off. Yes, and there's electricity if, going through it or it, there isn't. Right, and if it's on, Every time I look at it, it'll be on, unless I go and turn it off. <laughs> Not right? with those pesky quantum computers. <laughs> right. Quantum computers are better at modeling life. Okay. You know, think about it. If if I came into your office this morning and I said, are you going to go to dinner tonight? You'd have an answer. And it would be a true answer. And it would either be yes or no. Yeah. But if I came in now or after lunch and asked you the same question, it could change. Okay. And that's what life is really like. A digital system isn't necessarily good at modeling that. Okay. A quantum system is much better at modeling it. But we're in the very early stages. It used to be on digital computers you would run a job three times, and if you got the same answer twice, you'd call it good. Wow. <laughs> We eventually got to a point where every time you ran the problem, it'd be the same answer. Yeah. Well, quantum is still in that really early stage where yeah. they're trying to see if what they think is going on really is going on. Yeah, I heard somebody like describe it one time of, you know, like the Wright brothers. This is like the proof of concept. Right. But if you're thinking landing somebody on the moon as the personal home quantum computer, we're a long ways yeah. off from moving that proof of concept into something, you know. I I think what you're going to see, though, and what you're already seeing is that a lot more people are moving into supercomputers. Oh, wow. They're really becoming an essential part of business. Mm -hmm. They're they're an essential part of corporate capability or, or being able to be competitive at all. 
it, it was real funny because I got to see this stuff happening. You know, it, it used to be that no airplane company did supercomputing. Now mm-hmm. they all do. Yeah. It used to be that race car teams did not use supercomputing. <laughs> yeah. Now they all do. Yeah. I, I saw a, a presentation once from the people from Procter & Gamble. They actually modeled the Pringle potato chip. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> on supercomputers because they go through the factory so fast. The reason it's shaped the way it's shaped yeah. is so it won't fly off the <laughs> assembly line. Okay. They have that same problem with portable di- with uh, disposable diapers. It's just going through that factory, it's that machine. It's going through so fast. And so they have to model those processes. The aerodynamics to make sure it doesn't go flying off the assembly line. I've been lucky enough to go down to Mexico several times to talk yeah. to them about supercomputing. And I've talked to the um, government in like Jalisco. Mm-hmm. And I talked to them about how important supercomputing is from a country point of view mm-hmm. because it allows you to make decisions and sort of chart your own path. And so as a country, you could decide to spend money on supercomputers, or you can let other countries spend money on supercomputers and tell you what to do. Yes. So for folks who are looking for more information on some of the stuff that you're working on, I know on nasa.gov slash Ames, we have a landing page for supercomputing. We'll add those into the show notes so anybody can go ahead and, and okay, uh, check, check those out. And then um, we're online, so on Twitter, at NASA Ames, and we are using the hashtag NASA Silicon Valley. So if anybody has questions for Bill about the wonderful world of supercomputing, go ahead and tweet us some responses and we'll hook you up with Bill to get some answers for you. I'd be really pleased to answer them. (laughs) So thank you so much for coming over. This has been fascinating. Thank you. Thank you.